have you heard about Anchor? It's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me fill you in on a few things. Like first and foremost, it's free. And there are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Then Anchor is going to distribute the podcast for you so it can be heard on multiple platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and so many more. Even better, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And it's so easy, even somebody like me can do it. Now download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. And I know you hear me. Hi everyone, this is Linda Young, OG voice of Frieza, Dragon Ball Z, voice of Genkai, Yu Yu Hakusho, voice of poorly Yusuka, Fairy Tale, and more. <laughs> Excuse me for interrupting, but this is Lord Frieza, voice of Linda Young. You are listening to the I Know You Hear Me podcast with Flynn Hendricks. Wow, I am so sorry, but Frieza is a control freak. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Will Harridge, and I'm an audio engineer. But you would not believe the amount of mediocre voice actors I get in on the daily. It's scary, honestly. I always want to recommend them to Elise Bowman, who's the best voice acting coach I know. But I'm always afraid I'm going to offend them and be out of a job. Thankfully, I send the best ones over to her anyway over at EliseCoaches.com, and they keep coming back. Hi, I'm one of the mediocre talents that Will has to work with. And really, I'm thinking about looking up Elise myself. Go look at Elise Coaches today and start your career without ending mine. What he said. I know you hear me when I say that we are back for another awesome episode of the I Know You Hear Me podcast with me, Flynn Hendricks. And we got Jeff in studio over here doing this magical engineer wizardry that he does that goes over my head, so I can't even pretend to take all the credit for that. So, Jeffrey, thank you. We've got an awesome guest on the line here tonight, and we have got a unique story for this guy, and we go back way further than a lot of people might even realize. So I've been looking forward to this one for quite a while. But before we do that, i got a little bit of housekeeping that we got to get into. First off, I've got to thank everybody that's continued to check it out, continued to support. And if this is your first time, you picked a great episode to start with, but now, after you're done, here's where the fun part comes in, and here's where I'm going to ask you to do a little bit of work here. Please go back and subscribe on your preferred podcasting platform. We're on Google, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Wherever you get your podcast from, this podcast is there, so go like it. Leave a five-star and a written review, and share it with your family. Share it with your friends. Share it with a random stranger on the street. I don't care who. Just share it, because we got to get the word out about this podcast. People like it. Other people need to like it, too, because I know they'll like it as soon as they hear it. And then after that, go follow us on all social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Still hadn't figured out TikTok, probably won't, but I think three's enough, so we'll stick with that. But all the information for that is going to be in the show notes as well. Now, here comes the fun part, and I don't even really know where to begin on the introduction with this guy because we not only have wrestling in common, we have a love of Star Wars in common. Actually, I'm going to say... and probably unhealthy obsession and love of Star Wars in common. The wrestling, we were both champions at one time, but here's the real kicker. We're related. 
This guy is one of my in-laws on my mother's side of the family, and we didn't put two and two together until after we'd already met in the wrestling world. But he's also a dad. He's a husband, and I'm guessing at this time he is a possibly semi-retired independent professional wrestler. If he's anything like me, he's definitely full-on tired professional wrestler, but you know that's a different story in itself. It is my pleasure to have on the show here tonight Nick Berry. Nick, thank you for being on, man. Oh no, man! I appreciate it. Thank you for that introduction. I, that means a lot. Oh, dude, of course. But uh, man, let's let's jump right into it. Let's talk about the family thing for a minute because, you know, I as weird as this family story is, like we didn't know this whole side of my mom's family existed until around like two thousand nine, two thousand ten. We actually, you know, like we met at a family reunion around that right. time, and then you know, like come to find out, like a couple years later, I realized, like, hang on. I've been wrestling with this guy. I've been on these shows with him, and we I, I never put two and two together. Like, it, it just blows my mind how small of a world this was. So, like, what was that like for you when you figured out, like, we figured out who we were, you know? It was just crazy because, you know, you're obviously, even before I actually got into wrestling, I was just partnered with it as far as, like, the, the charity stuff that I was doing with the company that I was mm-hmm. in at the time. You know, I'd seen you wrestle multiple times, you know, in Portland and around Middle Tennessee. Oh, boy. You know, and then to see you at the family reunion, it was kind of like one of those things where you're, you're not sure what you saw, but you're like, okay. You know, you, you put two and two together, and then later on, it's like, wait a minute, that's really dying. Exactly, and it's like, yeah. if, if you're anything like me, it's like, I think I know who that is, but I know if I go say something, it's going to be somebody else, and they're going to look at me like I'm a complete idiot. So I just, I didn't say anything. But no, it's like, I just remember, I remember to a T, you uh, you came in to buy some knee pads at the sporting goods store I was working at, and I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> it's you. And then, you know, it's just like, we were, at, we were uh, at, on a show like two days later together. It, it just right. it blows my mind how it all played out. Yeah, that's uh, crazy how the wrestling business works sometimes. It, 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 yeah. Not even wrestling business, just life. It seems like they yeah. mirror each other to an extent, but sometimes reality is a little bit crazier than wrestling, if that makes any sense. But <laughs> man, so let's uh, let's back it up a little bit because I want to get back to uh, what not only got you into wrestling too, but you know, like. Into, like I mentioned in your introduction here, Star Wars, too, because that's been a pretty formative thing for both of us. Like, when you were growing up, what was that like when, you know, both of these things got introduced to you? Of course, yeah, you know, I was born in 78, so I grew up in the 80s. I was a kid of the 80s. My mm-hmm. younger brother was a couple years younger than me. We had some cousins that we were close with that were just a couple years younger than us. So we kind of all grew up together. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, were just lucky enough to, to live through the 80s with the amazing toys and movies and cartoons that were part of our just everyday life. Oh, yeah. But Star Wars was the one that we all gravitated towards to the most. Um, sci-fi in general, you know, was, you know, science fiction adventure, but Star Wars especially. Um, and then, to be honest, you know, what really kind of um, stimulated that for us, my brother and myself especially, was with my dad's job at General Motors, we started moving around mm-hmm. some more. We moved from Chicago to Pittsburgh for a year, then to Ooh. Kalamazoo, Michigan for a few years. Now we ended up in Tennessee. Well, the one constant we had through all that, even before we both started really following sports and everything, was Star Wars. The toys, the movies, you know, comic books, anything we can get our hands on. My brother and I, that was the one thing, even with the age difference, was Star Wars. So it just became, you know, just a secular part of our life. Absolutely. Now, what was it like, uh, what was it like when your parents started noticing, like, the continued, like, 
love and I guess like you know it just kept blossoming from there. What were they like when you when they saw like just how addicted you guys were becoming to this franchise? Um, the one what's one of the great things I'll say about our parents is that they were always of the mindset of whatever we showed an interest in or loved, they would try to make that grow. They would foster it any way they could. Um, that actually actually transitions to our, our love for wrestling too. It was the same thing. You know, of course they could have, and they did point out that, Hey, you know, that's, those guys are really friends and this and that. They even took us to live shows to try to show us that it was, you know, mm-hmm. not what we thought it was, which was the biggest mistake they ever could have made because now we're <laughs> 10 feet away from Mr. Perfect and, you oh, know, big man. boss man. And oh my so, God. <laughs> But yeah, no, our parents were, I so said, we were very lucky. They fostered and tried to make anything grow that we had any interest in. So absolutely, uh, they're very supportive. Now, let me, let me ask this because it seems like, you know, you hear a lot of people mention this as they grow up, you know, sometimes they grow away from the things that they were hooked on as kids or even, you know, like getting into middle school and elementary school. And, you know, like I even kind of went through a on off again phase with wrestling before I got gung ho in it. But did you ever have that with Star Wars or with wrestling as you were growing up where you kind of just drifted apart and then eventually came back to it? Um, yeah, I did. And for two completely different reasons. Um, Star Wars, um, you know, after the movies came out and everything, the toys and everything kind of died out until the prequels came. Mm-hmm. Well, in between that was basically when I was in high school. Yeah. So I, I switched over more to sports yep. and I was just more gung-ho in sports. Actually, it was thankfully, it was my brother who never let go of his love for star wars that kind of brought me back to it right um and now in wrestling it was a completely different thing again we grew up loving wrestling in the 80s you know i was we never really watched a lot of nwa or wcw mm-hmm. we were mostly wwf at the time or then wwe right but and as it got into the late 80s going into the actually more the early to mid 90s mm-hmm. wwe kind of lost its uh creative direction <laughs> And it was very campy, very hokey. Yeah, occupational so, characters, you know, whatever yeah. whatever you want to call it. But yeah, I know exactly right. what you mean. So it just kind of, I wasn't really interested anymore. It was kind of in the background. Yeah. And then really it was, uh, to be honest, it was um, not until the formation of the NWO oh, that really all the rumors and everybody's like, oh, you got to watch this. You really got to watch this. That's what got me back into it. Yeah. And then, and then from there, by this time we were in college. And a friend of my brother's was a diehard ECW fan. And of course, oh. that was when ECW was only on, you know, two o'clock in the morning yeah. or you had to have videotapes. So they were like, yeah. you got to watch this stuff. So that's, they got, that got me rehooked into the next generation of wrestling. Yep. So let me, let me ask you this though, as you, as you, as you're an adult now, and with all the moving around you did as a kid, do you think that having, I know you mentioned it, you know, like with your brother, especially, but when mm. you're making these new friends or you're not in these towns for more than a year and, you know, you're continuing to move his dad's job dictates it. Mm. Do you think that having like something like star Wars or wrestling to talk about with other kids in those towns made it easier for you to make friends and, you know, fit in and adapt to those new scenarios as well? Or do you think like it, you know, other kids maybe liked it, but didn't think it was as cool as you did. What was that like? Well, it was definitely, as you know, you know, wasn't always such a popular thing to be a fan right. of sci-fi, oh, comic yeah. books, that kind of stuff, wrestling. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wouldn't say that, that it made it easy. It did make it, and obviously you made some friends right off the bat because yeah. you wear a certain shirt, you wear, you know, they, people recognize it. So, you know, that kind of thing, sports was another thing that helped make friends. But I think it would, it would I would, I think I would have fit in much better in this uh, this age where obviously 
you know, being a geek is kind of the cool thing to be now. Absolutely. And I man, it's it's a theme that I've noticed come up so many times across like all these previous episodes, like all the stuff, like especially when I was in middle school, like anime or even wrestling, like mm-hmm. it wasn't the cool thing to like them, but now it's like everybody loves it. And you know, it's like right. I've loved it forever. Well, no, you didn't. <laughs> you were the guy like making me feel like I had to keep it quiet, you know, but I mean like it's just crazy how it's gone from something you gotta be a closet fan of to now it's literally everywhere. Like you see wrestling billboards, you see ads for all this stuff on social media, like everybody knows what's going on and it's like, Man, where was this when I was a kid? Like it would have been so much cooler and so much better. But yeah, I, I get what you're saying one hundred percent. Well, that was one of the things about that was eye opening for me about college was mm-hmm. you get out of these small towns and you get into a bigger town, college, a lot more diverse population, obviously on campus. Yeah. Suddenly there's a giant group of wrestling fans that gets together every Monday night and watches Raw and uh, Nitro. Or there's a huge group of Star Wars fans that rewatches the movies a hundred times. You know? yeah. <laughs> so it was it was funny to kind of get away from that that small pond into the bigger pond and you meet these groups of people that came from their own small pond and were looking for the same kind of inclusion. Absolutely. So, man, let me uh, let me get into it now. Like, where did you end up meeting uh, my cousin Kelly through all this? Till like you went to college. Did y'all meet in college? After college? How did all that happen? Well, it's funny. We were. Uh, I was going as I was going through college. I was working for the MTSU police department, trying to you know just oh, making really? some money. Okay. Yeah, they used uh, students as dispatchers and as uh, to walk people from their dorms and stuff at night. Oh, and nice. So uh, I worked the midnight shift. So I was doing a lot of online classes over the summer, right? Um, just doing them as I was going through through that. Well, she was working for the police department in Goodlettsville, also working a midnight shift. Oh! And believe it or not, we were we met in the very early days of online dating. Okay. So, yeah, it was a. We just put in a profile. Actually, I think I put a profile in in like January or February or something like that, and we never actually got any notifications about each other until like May. Wow. And then, uh, yeah, but, and then, I mean, we hit it off right off the bat. We did a lot of talking on the phone first, obviously, before we met in person. Of course. Um, but then we met in person and, you know, things kind of snowballed from there pretty, pretty fast. Absolutely. And this question will make sense as we get more into the wrestling, but did you wear your lumberjack flannel on the first date? <laughs> no, no, I, uh, had not discovered my Canadian roots at that time. <laughs> ah, I gotcha. I gotcha. So did she, was she aware, like how was she a fan of star Wars or a fan of wrestling as, uh, as you guys meet and you know, the romance develops, was she a fan of these things that you were also a fan of? Did she kind of like have to, uh, become a fan because you were like, she was just around it so much that she started liking it. What was that like? Right. We actually joke quite a bit that she would, she tells me all the time that if you would have told me, you know, 20 something years ago that I would know all these star Wars characters or all these wrestlers or whatever. She goes, I would have called you a liar. Cause we could not have been more opposite in the stuff we liked. Right. The one right. thing, the one big thing we had in common as far as entertainment, sort of that was really comedies. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a big horror movie fan. She's not star Wars fan, wrestling fan, cartoons, comic books. She's not, <laughs> <laughs> she's more of the, you know, more big time in the music. Yeah. Uh, that kind of stuff. And, you know, I like music. Obviously, grew up around it, but that's definitely not my favorite. Absolutely. So, yeah. So she's definitely learned. She's she's made a lot of sacrifices over the last uh, twenty two years. I think so, it goes both ways, though. But I mean, it it, yeah. it kind of proves the point that opposites attract in that regard too. But I mean, all these years later, you're still making it work, and she's still supporting everything. So I mean, that goes both oh, yeah. ways too. You're supporting her, so 
yeah, that was a win-win. But man, I didn't I didn't realize that like y'all were in the same lines of work, you know, about fifty minutes apart from each other. <laughs> it, it, it just blows my mind. Yeah, it's uh like I said again that whole small world thing, you know that, and then yeah. without the without the creation of the internet dating, we probably never would have crossed paths. Just cause... right. And I mean, truth be told, that's the same thing about me and my wife. And I, I think I've told the story on here a time or two. It's like. We were in a lot of the same places in Murfreesboro, like at the same time, years before we ever met, but we never crossed paths. You know, we knew some of the same people. We were always in the same bar, you know, like right up there off campus, but we just never crossed paths with each other. Then three years later, it's like, oh, this is the woman you're going to marry. She's going to put up with you and all your moodiness and all your collectibles and everything. It's like, oh, well, who hit the jackpot here, me or her? Probably me, but. We'll say her just for just for comedy purposes, <laughs> but um, man, so let's let's talk about it now. As like you know, you guys end up having two kids, um, which man, I think you guys are empty nesters now, which makes me feel old. Yeah, and yeah. as they're you know, as you start to see them grow and develop too, do you start to see them starting to like you know like get into a lot of the things that you were a fan of as a kid like the wrestling the star wars and the sci-fi did you see that with austin or you know like did you see any of like the same things you did as a kid coming through your children oh yeah um of all the things that i grew up liking or whatever for example austin just because he was the firstborn and the one you know he's the the boy Mm -hmm. of the two um you know he grew up as he was a kid he loved wrestling loved star wars loved superheroes all that stuff you know, when I used to actually, when I went through training, started training with, uh, to get into wrestling, yep. he would actually go with me a couple times. Oh, really? A week and do some, do some of the drills, do some of the stuff. Ooh, buddy. So it wasn't until he got to college that he kind of really shifted his focus full time to his music and stuff like that, that he does now. Right. Um, and Kelsey, uh, Kelsey has always been definitely a daddy's girl. Yeah. Um, so she, if I, if I liked something, she liked it just because whether she really, knew it or understood it of course and then of course as she got older she kind of gravitated towards her own things but yeah you know i always joke that no matter what david knox the alter ego always had one number one fan no matter what and that was her and i believe he so also showed up it. at her birthday party too uh yes i did you're talking about that the other day actually. <laughs> that was uh, man that was the thing that won you <laughs> over for me because that was so awesome but continue with your story i didn't mean to cut you off there oh no no it's uh you know i think it's great to see you know, some of the same likes that they have with me and with my wife, some of the stuff she loves that they, they've picked up to over the years, but it's also so cool to see some of the things that are completely different from us. Absolutely. That, you know, that they kind of make their own and take it in and it becomes part of what they're known for. That That's kind of cool to see. 100%. I mean, speaking of things that are cool to see too, like I, I just, because we're connected on social media, you know, like I'll see the, the family outing days or the daddy daughter right. days that still continue, mm-hmm. even though she's, you know, she's grown into her own woman. Now, like it's amazing that, you know, in a world where so much of this stuff seems like it's just, you know, out the window, family or parent dynamic wise, like you guys still hold to that and it still works out so well for y'all. And, you know, even the same thing too, with how your parents nurture the things you and your brother were into growing up, you're doing the same thing, especially with Austin with, you know, like his band and music. And now like he's coming back to teach drum corps that since he's aged out, like just the amount of support that you guys put into that and the posts you put on social media too, like, you can just tell like how much everybody means to each other in your clan. And that's an amazing, amazing thing to see. Oh yeah, definitely. And I think 
honestly, I think part of that is from moving around so much as a kid. Mm-hmm. You know, I value my relationship with my parents, obviously, but I know with our kids, thankfully, we haven't had to move a whole lot or anything right, like that. Right. But, you know, I understand that the time that you get with them is short. I mean, you just really don't know. So we try to enjoy. And of course, we've had our days where, you know, they're kids. They've, they've ticked us off or oh, know, yeah. we did something that, that ruined their day or whatever it may of be. Course. But, um, but no, we've always tried to make an understanding that, you know, when everything goes away, when everything falls away, they're still just the four of us. That's it. I mean, so let me let me ask this now, especially, you know, like as the kids are growing up, because it, it blows my mind that this was, you know, like 10, 11 years ago at this point <laughs> that, you know, like we started doing these shows in Nashville for at the time what was NWA main event. And, you know, like you would see Kelly in the crowd with two little kids that are now grown <laughs> up. Like, what was it like for them, like seeing you make this journey into wrestling? And also, too, let's back it up a little bit past that. What, how did you find somebody to train you and find your way into independent wrestling? Because, you know, back at that time, even that wasn't something that was really that well known on how to do. Like you either had to know somebody or, or whatever it may be. And social media wasn't even that big of a thing to get the word out. So how did you find out about it? And what were their reactions when you, you know, like when you told them that was something you were interested in pursuing? Well, there's, two parts to this real quick the first part when i was in college at mtsu mm-hmm. myself and my brother lived together we had friends of ours we uh worked i was working at the police department but i also worked part-time at kroger in murfreesboro yeah and some of the guys we worked with they were like hey you know we're we're we, we, we're in pro wrestling we're independent wrestling i was like that's cool i didn't even never even thought in my head that that was a thing yeah you know you just kind of were in wwe or wcw or whatever and that was it so um but they're like no yeah we do it every you know every saturday night this and this and this and uh, they said, you should really get into it. You know, you're a big guy. You know, my brother, too. My brother, who's younger than I am, is actually bigger than I am. And they're like, you know, you guys should get into this. You guys would have a blast. And we're like, nah, we just never really thought it was anything real that we could ever actually do. So we just went on with our lives. Well, that was 99, say, mm-hmm. 2010, 2009. I'm with Hollywood Video. We do a lot of charity work. We do a lot of raising money for Vanderbilt Children's Hospital. Yeah. One of the biggest, um, I think it was on... I don't know if it was social media or something. I think it might have been a flyer. We saw a wrestling show. We went to the wrestling show. Um, met up with actually uh, Mike Porter, of all people. Oh, yep, yep. And he said, uh, you know, he was looking to do, do more stuff. So we kind of got with him and partnered with him to do charity shows uh, once a month or so. If I'm not mistaken, too, didn't you guys do an autograph signing? I, I think I remember... Uh, you know, it was with the Boogie Woogie Boy, Gary Valiant, and Jeff Daniels. Didn't you guys do a signing at one of the stores, and they filmed a, a segment there or something? Oh, yeah, the one in Antioch. Actually, I still had the chair that had Jeff's blood all over it oh. that he autographed. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we did that one. We did a one with Lawler as well right before one of the events in Portland. Yep, I remember that um, one. Well, and then through that, I met quite a few of the wrestlers. You know, I met, actually, that's the first time I came across you. Yeah, met LT Falk um, and Steve-O, who mm-hmm. was the one who ultimately, you know, just got to talking to him, pulled me aside. He's like, you know, man, you know, you could you could really do this. You have a lot of knowledge for the business. You, you know, you've seen you've seen a lot as a fan. Yeah. You know, you got you got to build all this stuff. And I was like, eh, I don't know. Well, talked to my wife about it, and she and she had known over the years that I always thought it'd be something that would be cool. Yeah. And she was like, but well, actually, a friend of mine who was working for me moved out to Seattle to do that to be a, work with Buddy Wayne. And be wow. a professional wrestler. Oh, wow. And uh, he called me. He said, man, it's the best decision I ever made. So I was talking to Kelly. And she was like, well, if you don't do it now, you're never going to do it. So I called uh, Mike up, 
reporter and uh, said, yeah, I'm interested in doing it. So I met with him and Steve-O on an Easter weekend and kind of set everything up and started training. Man, and um, how old were you when you actually started doing that? So let's see, that was 2000, end of 2009, beginning of 2010. So yep. I was 30-something, 33, 32, something like that. And so I think what, it was 32. And what was that like for you? Because, you know, like, it's so weird to say now because I started when I was 18, you know, like, a month after I turned 18, two months after graduating high school. But I see kids now, like, I think there's even somebody that has a contract uh, with the new company, AEW, that's mm. 16. You see these people starting so young, and it's almost like a rarity where you have somebody that, and that's not even an old age. Like, you're not even old at that point, but it seems like in the wrestling business, the closer you get to 40, you're kind of looked at as either in your prime or past your prime. What's it like? Like, do you did you have people trying to talk you out of it because you were in your thirties when you started? Because it, it's weird to say, like in everyday life, you're not old, but in wrestling, they look at you like you're ancient at that point. No, I, I, nobody really tried to talk me out of it because it was wrestling or because of my age. It was more because of the wear and tear I put on my body playing football course, through high school, yeah. then a little, a little bit in college. Um, you know, of course, my knees are shot, my back is shot, all that stuff. But it was more, you know, I knew going in, just talking to Steve and Mike. You know, somebody, especially on the independents, somebody my size wasn't going to be doing a ton of insane bumps right. and stuff like that. So mostly it was going to be, did I have the strength that I have, the leg, you know, leg strength, back strength um, to be able to physically carry people, pick people yep. up, do that kind of stuff. Um, and then, you know, was I willing to put some of the work in? Because, you know, I, I've never been in the greatest shape since I stopped playing uh, organized sports. But, you know, was I willing to come in a couple times a week and work with Steve-O and do the running, do the lifting, do the you know, do all the stuff that I probably would never do in a match, but yeah. I had to be able to do it just so my body would know it. So, you know, there was, and of course, there's always the, the worry about injury. You know, I was lucky enough to have a regular job full-time to back me up as far as insurance and stuff like that Absolutely. goes. Absolutely. So. And crazy to say that's a rarity for, you know, for a lot of people in wrestling too. That's a, that's a rare thing in and of itself. <laughs> well, and it's, and it's funny though. <laughs> so to finish off that first part of that story, Mm-hmm. A few years after I get into wrestling, I've worked with Mike in main event. Main event kind of closes down for a bit, for a little bit. Um, Sorry about uh, that. That was my fault. <laughs> well, Steve actually, um, I'd worked some with Bert too. Yep. I'd, I'd have a good relationship with Bert. Um, but Steve had actually gotten me hooked up with uh, the McDaniels, in Tennessee Opera Wrestling. Yeah. So I get there. I meet them the first night. You know, don't know anybody that's there. Um, talk to them. And they say, hey, we're going to put you in a tag team just to kind of get you used to the crowd, get the crowd to know you. I said, okay. They said, so we have a tag team partner for you. I said, okay. He walks in, and I turn around, and I'm like, are you kidding me? It was the guy that worked with us at Kroger in college that said I should get into pro wrestling. No joke. <laughs> yeah, uh, Adam Strange. And uh, now did, and I know Adam and I haven't yeah. seen him in years and that's so man. <laughs> now let me let me ask you this. Did he know you were gonna be there? Did he request that tag team or was that just spontaneous, two big guys together, and then lo and behold, look what the world put together? He didn't request it. That was uh, Rich is the one that put that together. Okay. He knew he knew before he knew that I was coming before I knew he was there. So Man, yeah. I only and I only got to work that guy like once or twice and that's something I wish I could have done more of too. That guy was, he was such a blast to be around. Yeah. He is definitely one of the, 
I'd say more underrated guys yes. in the NDC Tennessee. And I'll, I'll say that for Steve-O, too, because I know yeah. at one point you and I were both glued to him as far as matches go. <laughs> and, man, it was it, – for me, it got to a point where we – it was just a night off. You know, it's <laughs> like he you know he had his things that he did. You'd become aware of it, and it's just like, okay, we're going to go out and have fun. It's like I don't get why so many people, you know, like – because, you know, like how in wrestling there's a lot of insecurities and – People will get, oh, yeah. you know, butthurt if somebody gets a bigger crowd reaction than them or whatever it may be. And a lot of people would tend to have that towards Steve-O, but no matter where he went, he would have one of the loudest reactions of the night. He would have the most fan interaction in his matches, and it was always yep. an easy night for whoever was working him. So I, I, I wish I could have had more matches with that guy. Well, and the one thing I'll say about Steve-O, too, I mean, obviously he was great to me. I owe him quite a bit. Actually, I owe him quite a lot. Um but he was also one of those guys that he didn't have to win to get over. No, no, he did not. He, he could got lose it. and be just as popular. Yeah, I mean, he he knew how, like you said, he knew how to work the crowd. He knew how to work the, the emotion that was going in, you know, and he would win when it makes sense and he would lose when he needed to kind of push that to the next week. Absolutely. Now, let me let me ask you this too, uh, just because, you know, like, talking about somebody that gets it. When you were first breaking in too, before you got down to uh, Tennessee All-Pro, your your character kind of went through quite a few different changes and incarnations before you came across, you know, like David Knox, you know, the uh, you know, the Canadian lumberjack and everything. What was it like for you when you had so many people with their hands in the pot, you know, like throwing in ideas for what you should be and who you should be? What was that like for you finding the pieces of what to use and what not to use and how you apply? Like, what was all that like for you? Um, it's kind of, it's a double-edged sword. Obviously mm-hmm. you want to be, you want to be somebody who takes advice. Yes. Somebody who listens and, you know, but you also want to make sure that these people aren't going to be doing the gimmick. Yes. They're not, they're you. not going to be right. So you have to be, I think you have to be open. And that was what I, I was always told, you know, listen to everybody, but do what you, what makes you comfortable. Yes. Um, so, and there were certain people obviously that had more pull than others. So maybe you listen to them a little bit harder than you do someone else. Right. But, right. Um, but, you know, like, ultimately, Charming Charles is the one that came up with the lumberjack gimmick. Yes. I'd never been a lumberjack in my life. Never really, you know, chopped wood in my life. But he was, you know, the way he laid it out, the way he described the reason, you know, it made sense. And it's yeah. something that I thought I could pull off comfortably. Absolutely. You know, so I think it's, you know, I like the fact that I had people that were interested enough to, to keep telling me what I should do or should try or do this or that. But, you know, I think that's if I could give advice to someone who was starting off, I would say just remember – you know, that person could leave tomorrow and you never see him again. Yep. So you got to make sure you can live that gimmick. I mean, are you willing to put that gimmick in social media? You know, are you really willing to put that gimmick in when you're out there interacting with the fans? Are you comfortable doing that? Because if not, it's not going to come off as genuine. Very, very true. And I mean, that's something that, you know, like, I know Jeff's here, you know, like doing the, uh, doing the engineering side of things, but that's something that's come up on our other podcast, Tales from the Haunt, too, especially with scare acting acting, improv, voice acting, Shakespeare, whatever it is, there has to be that piece of authenticity for the person that's bringing that character to life. Otherwise, just like in wrestling, people will pick up on whether or not you believe in what you're doing. And if they know you don't believe in what you're doing, why should they care? Why should they cheer you? Why should they boo you? You know, if if you don't care enough to be invested, why should they? Right. 100%. Yeah. And then, you know, getting into it too, um, and again, I'm not I'm not saying this in any way to be kind of slanderous or anything like that, but when you get into the indie scene, like you man, you get a hodgepodge of different levels of entertainers or 
it, it, sometimes it's a stretch to use the word athlete, you know, for example, but you see people that have gear, people that don't, people that have been properly trained, people that haven't, people that get booked because they bring their family, or people that travel and do this for a living. Like, you see every end of the spectrum. What was it like for you, like, coming into that world when you, like, when you grew up on WWF, WCW, ECW, like, you see this stuff on TV, and then what you, like, see, you know, in real time in a backstage environment or even at some of these shows is, you know, like, so completely different from what's presented on a national and worldwide level. What's that like for you, and how do you process that? Um, it's definitely an eye-opening experience, um, especially if you didn't attend a lot of the indie wrestling shows as oh, a fan yeah. first. You don't see a lot of that, or you don't even kind of get the general idea. You just think these guys show up, they do their match, everybody does it, and they go home. Not that, just like every other segment of society, there's drama. There's, yep. whether it's self-made drama, whether it's real drama, whether, like you said, the insecurities. Mm -hmm. You know, you may think you have the greatest relationship in the world with a person and realize a week later that all they've been doing is going behind your back trying to eliminate you from, you know, yeah. whatever that they were doing. You know, but I, I took it to heart. I mean, I had Steve-O was a big influence on me with this, but so was Bert. Bert was always like, look, you know, the best thing you can do being a new guy is sit in a locker room, don't say a word, unless somebody asks you a question. But when they ask you a question, be honest. They'll know if you're lying. So I, that's what I did. I mean, I, to this day, I don't talk a lot in the locker room when I'm in there. And, I've, you know, there's a lot of guys that I, I've known for years. But, you know, if somebody asks me a question or advice, you know, I'd just be open and honest with them. Like I said, that's, I think it's one of the things that freed me by, by not trying to do this as a career and not trying to travel and, I think if I had done that when I was younger, that's how the path I probably would have went. Yeah. But knowing that I wasn't going to be able to, because of the family and full-time job and things like that, that I was, I didn't have to worry about hurting people's feelings. I could just be honest. Absolutely. Because, you know, I wasn't, this wasn't my job. Yeah. So, you know, but I, I think you see that a lot. You see people that come in and man, they were huge in this one town, but now they're in, they're in this town and nobody knows you, but you still want to act the same way. It's, it's, it's not the same. The guys in the locker room, there's a, you know, there's obviously a continuity. There's a family like yep. atmosphere and there is some infighting. There's brothers bickering, you know, there's, yeah. you know, and then there are some guys that have legitimate shots that they put in the time and effort and they know it and they, they're trying to grab that brass ring, but they feel someone's in their way. So then it becomes like almost like a high school drama. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of the times too, like even if they know that they're on the cusp of something, sometimes, you know, it seems like even in act it, across all forms of entertainment, a level of self sabotage can set in too, because you know, like the insecurities do set in, and even though they're doing all the right things, they're on the right path. They, for whatever reason, will compare themselves to whatever so and so else is doing that doesn't even apply to them, and then it's just like the downward spiral commences from there too. So it's like, you know, it's like just like you said, like exactly the advice Bert gave you: show up. You know, sit and listen, be honest in what you do, and just things will fall into place because people, the right people will gravitate towards you and help guide you along your way. But you have to avoid comparing yourself to everybody else, too, because, again, they're not you. You're not them. What works for them doesn't work for you, and what worked here doesn't work there. So, you know, again, it, it all just kind of falls into place like that. Oh, yeah. Now, let me let me ask you this, too. You mentioned it here, and I feel like you're you're making my job easy tonight. <laughs> you mentioned, you know, like, if you had been younger, you know, like before the family was, you know, the family had formed, you know, you'd probably travel around a lot more and do this. 
even with independent wrestling, you know, like you're going sometimes two, three hours away from home for a night or sometimes two nights. What's that like on the home dynamic, especially, you know, like when you've got two kids that are growing up and, you know, Kelly's at home with the kids or sometimes they may even go with you. But like, what is that like on the home dynamic doing all that travel and putting that wear and tear on your body too? Um, I think just like anything else in a marriage, as long as you're honest with each other, mm-hmm. um, you know, like I only have X amount of, of years to be able to do this. Yes. So I'm going to try to fit in. But the the flip side of that is I was always honest with the promoters too, saying, look, you know, I have a birthday party coming up on this weekend for my kids. I'm, I'm not missing it. Absolutely. You know, that, that's just the way every promoter I've ever worked with. I was up front with them that you know, my family came first and I understood that that may means I may not be involved in storylines as much yep. or as big or used as much at first, especially and that was a trade-off I was willing to make. Now, again, had I been 18 and going through this, and if this had made this my life, you know, that may have been a little bit different story. Absolutely. But, you know, the family dynamic was already in place, and that was was and still is the most important thing to me. Um, but you know, I was also very lucky that I had a wife that, as long as I didn't hurt myself, she was on my side. You know, the first time I would have had a major injury, I think that we would have to have a serious talk about whether or not I was going back. So. Oh yeah. Now, let me let me ask you this too, because I know like you've had some uh, some matches I've never personally done. Um, like I don't know if the correct stipulation is hardcore or you know like falls count anywhere, no holds barred. But like you've gone through, I, if I'm correct me if I'm mistaken, but I think you've gone through like a flaming table. Um, I think you've also done thumbtacks, if I'm not mistaken. I think I've done thumbtacks three or four times. Now. What? Like, because I've, you know, I've done a match where somebody else has gone through them. I didn't personally want to be in that match because I, I was not a fan of that stuff. And I've truth be told 15 years now, I've never taken a chair shot to the head. Never will. But you know, like I've, I've done some other stupid stuff. I've gotten concussions, but like, how do you go into a match where, you know, something like that, you know, is like part of the story you're going to tell is there a mental preparation for that? Is there physical preparation? Like, how do you get in the zone to know that you're about to do that to your body? The Well, the chair shot thing, I'll, I'll tell you first. I learned the hard way that you don't have to take a chair shot to the head to get the point across. Nope. But the last chair shot I took was, and the only reason why I took it is because it was from somebody I trusted. Uh, it was Larry Cooter. Um, no problem. But that was years and years ago. Yep. So from then on, I was like, you know what? for lack of a way to, better way to put it i don't hope this doesn't come out the wrong wrong way but i don't get paid enough to get hit in the head yeah the chair and risk some serious injury the other stuff you know honestly the thumbtack thing every time i did it was always my idea I, it was always something i i threw in i, I supplied the thumbtacks um the flaming table um actually was presented to me as an opportunity and it's not really obviously there's nothing really physical you can do yeah. Um, to prepare for it you just kind of mentally go okay hey we're gonna do this and you know as you know when you're in the ring adrenaline takes a lot of care oh, of a lot yeah. of stuff <laughs> so the thumbtacks to be honest with you um the only part that ever hurt about the thumbtacks i've even taken a curb stomp on the thumbtacks the only part that ever hurt was when you're trying to get yourself up and you have to push up and they're on oh. your hands that's the only part i mean i've had them in my head i've had them in my body i've had them all over the place oh. and they didn't hurt so now I would rather do thumbtacks than like repeated chair shots and Man. and the flaming table. I got lucky with the flaming table because it went out pretty fast. I hit the table, it crumpled, the flames went out. Right, right. So. Oof, man, I'm cringing. I mean, you can see it on camera. <laughs> I'm 
I'm cringing just thinking about it because like I'm just remembering that one match where the guy did go into the thumbtacks and I went to pin him. I pricked my thumb with one and I just remember that feeling and I'm like, I, I, I guess I'm a, I'm a sissy. I don't know. I don't want to do that. But oh no, now like I've now I've stepped on thumbtacks at home that when I'm emptying out my gear and stuff. And there's no adrenaline, and that hurts. Oh, you buddy, <laughs> you ain't, oh, you ain't getting. It's like stepping on a Lego. Oh man. So, let me ask you this too, especially you know, like when you do that in a story, do, do you have to, um, do you have to explain that to the person, or you know, that you may be working with, or the person that may be booking or like setting up the storyline for the entire show? Do you have to explain how it makes sense to them? Do they have to explain it to you, or? How does that even come into play to make it a part of your story where it makes sense? Every time I've done it, it was it was a payoff match. So we had built a storyline for a few months, uh -huh. and this was the payoff. So we had built up to it. Um, it wasn't just because it was a random Saturday. Yeah. And hey, let's do this. So now we've done you know, like fatal four ways and stuff like that. Yep. And you know, dog collar chain matches and stuff, like that. and that's just kind of the gimmick for the fans. That the wrestling is actually easier because you're not a lot you can do. It's mostly just yeah. beating the crap out of each other. Exactly. But when it comes to the thumbtacks and the tables and everything, you know, I just go to the guy and say, look, I'm comfortable taking this. You know, if you want, are you comfortable giving it to me one? And is there anything you want to do? Because obviously we want to keep it story-wise. We want to keep it back and forth. So if I'm going through thumbtacks, I got to do something to you, whether it's hitting you in the back with a chair or whatever, you know, throwing you or blading you against the ring post or whatever it may be. Yep. Yeah. So, what are you willing to do? What are you comfortable doing? Because we've already set up that this is going to be a hardcore match or a false count anywhere, mm -hmm. no holds barred or whatever it may be. So, again, it's just that honesty thing. That hey, I'm willing to do this. I'd really like to do this if you're interested. You know, what do you want to do as the trade off? You know, how do we want to set this up? So, right. I like that. It's that team dynamic, and it's again that what are you comfortable with? What am I comfortable with? Let's find that and meet in the middle. I love that. Yeah. And then, um, I guess a couple of the last questions I have too, especially you know, like. As I, I hate saying like we're we're on the tail end of a pandemic because it's still going on. But you know, like you were still wrestling when I wasn't when the pandemic hit, and it's like everything just kind of shut down. Things just went topsy turvy, and nobody really knew what was going on. So what was that like for you when you have these independent shows that you're booked on, but you know everything is shut down? What was that like for you? Did you ever consider hanging it up then, or you know what was that like? There was a span in 2020, right when the pandemic first started. Um, I think it was probably end of April, beginning of May. Mm -hmm. um, it kind of was twofold. It coincided with uh, my dad passing away. Oh, that's and, right. And the, the uh, COVID and everything was kind of in full, full blown rolling out. So mm -hmm. um, I was very honest with the promoters at TAP at the time. I was like, hey, you know, obviously I'm going to step away because of my dad and you know, my mom and everything going on. Of course. Uh, and then it kind of snowballed into, well, we have the pandemic. You know, I'm just going to kind of stay out for a while. I think I was out for like a, about a month, month and a half. Yeah. Um, and then I went back in. And honestly, um, if I didn't trust the guys that I was in there with, mm -hmm. that they were being honest, that they weren't sick, that they weren't feeling bad, that they weren't, I mean, obviously I was still going to work every day. Yeah. So if I felt if I can go to work every day, then I can do this. As long as it's the guys I trust that I know are on the up and up. Absolutely. Absolutely. Did you, and was there any hesitation from the family about that as well? I know by that point, I think, you know, Austin was already in college and everything, but I believe you still had Kelly and, uh, and Kelsey at home. So like, was that, was everything cool on that front? Oh, 
Uh, no, not at first. No, oh. Especially that's why that, that's one of the biggest reasons why I took off that month, month and a half. Was mm-hmm. Between my mom and Kelsey, but especially my mom and Kelly. Yeah, there was a lot of, yeah, you don't need to do this. There's no point. It's, there's no point risking it. Yeah. So before we kind of fight, kind of knew what things were going to be like, you know, I, yeah, that, that was the biggest reason why. So absolutely. And then here's here's another one too, especially like from that performance standpoint, like when you look at like what WWE did, where they performed all these matches, you know, like in an empty arena, and like we've we've done that, like where we've had to do TV tapings for Bert, you know, back in the day, and you do them at noon or one o'clock in the afternoon or even eleven o'clock in the morning when you're used to performing you know, like later in the day and it's maybe a small crowd of 30 people or there may not even be people there at all. It's like just an empty arena tryout or something like that. What was that like for you when the crowds were down because of that? It's like, did you feel like it was harder to get in character and have that adrenaline rush when the crowds were down or they may have even been scared because of the pandemic or did you just, were you able to get full on David Knox mode and just make it what it was? What was that like for you? It's definitely different um, for people that anybody that tells you it doesn't feel different, they're lying. Yeah. Because as you know, the crowd makes or breaks everything. Yes, it does. If you go out there and have a, an amazing match and you're into character and nobody says a word, you just you just don't feel it. You lose the momentum through the match. Or you're in Japan, yeah, one as, of the two. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or as far as the crowds being down, though, it, it was it wasn't really an issue um, because I think actually at the time I was a heel. Right. And you know, I could go out there and I was still going to be arrogant. I was still going to be bigger than you. I was still going to be stronger than you. Of course. I was still going to be more successful. Even if it was only 10 people, I'm still going to point at you and tell you that you're nothing compared to what I am. You know, all that's different thing. I, I'm, you know, there's some little kid that I'm still going to tell him, I know where you live. I'm going to be under your bed tonight and you're going to sleep. Right. You know, right. Those kind of things. As long as you can get one person that I think that gives you the momentum. That's now, exactly like scare acting. Right. Yeah, and then Beautiful. obviously it's better if you have, you know, 100 people of as course. opposed to 20, but yeah. I get it. I get it. So, man, I got a, I got a couple – well, I guess a few more questions now uh, mm-hmm. because I've, I've got a few more. We actually had an angle at one point where um, me, you, and former guests of the show, uh, mm-hmm. Jimmy Street and Zach yeah. Harris – we're all a faction at USWO, which has unfortunately shut down now. I guess cool thing about it is I can say I was the final champion. And then, you know, like all these eight years later, I'm still the champion. Cool <laughs> stuff. But, you know, it's like we things finally started falling into place where I was never supposed to be a, a top guy for Tony. And, you know, like it, he told me that in training, too. So I'm like, OK, I'm going to make you regret these words. And I'm, I'm throwing up the middle fingers now. And, you know, I left his promotion over that at one point. But, you know, I come back. They asked me to come back. I started pitching these ideas, and they ended up putting us in a group, which, again, was my idea. We start getting all this stuff going, and we're eventually building up where you're the uh, what they had as the Music City champion at that yep. time. And then I won the heavyweight title. I got to be back for one show after that, and then somehow I got banned from the building over some petty promoter drama. But we were building to uh, you splitting off from the group and, you know, like, feuding with me for the heavyweight title, but it just, it never got to happen. So, like, what were your hopes for that, like, whether we got to extend the run of the dynasty or whether or not we actually got to face each other and have these matches? Because I had so much going through my mind, but what was going through yours as far as, like, what we could have done with that angle had it actually happened? 
Right. Well, first, you know, I'm very thankful for Tony. He was actually, uh, LT approached me one night at TAP and said, hey, my dad really wants you to come to USWO. He loves your gimmick, loves the lumberjack thing. You know, he's always been in stuff like that. Would you be interested? I said, sure, definitely. I love Tony. He's always been good to me, always been nice to me. Um, so went, and then, yeah, that thing started building, and it was just so cool to be involved with people that I genuinely liked. You know, it's one thing to be thrown together with a stranger. You have no idea if the chemistry is going to work. You just yeah. don't know. You know, but then you get to, you know, obviously me and you had known each other for quite a while at that time. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd worked with, you know, Zach had been a couple times at NWA made event. Yep. Um, Jimmy, same way, uh, you know, as uh, Prince Omar, you know, I, I, you know, so that part was great. And I was, I love the idea. I've always loved the idea of a faction. Oh, you yeah. Know, the original Survivor Series set up was something that always intrigued me as a kid. Of course, D-Generation X, NWO, all that yep. stuff. You know, Loaf Barik was, um, so I, I, I would have loved to have ridden that wave a little bit longer. Oh, God, yeah. And maybe added a fourth person so you'd have the tag belts well, and we, all that stuff. I, I had actually pitched for that, and it was always supposed to be um, Chris Norte, but like he was always there. He was always involved, but they just never right. made it official. And I, I had had the same hopes, too, where we had all the fact, all the belts like the, um, you know, like the Horseman did or like Evolution right. or whoever it was, and you know, like we would just have these baby faces that we could help make, like a Fireball Roberts or a TNT Motley or, you know, even Chris Michaels, put him with them because that's who I won the belt from. And, right. you know, it's just like, put all these guys together and let's change it and give these people something that they're not used to seeing. You know, they see this on Friday nights, but we're running it Saturday nights. Let's give them something different. Right. You know, and then the last part of that is, yeah, I mean, obviously I would have loved at some point to split off I think that's obviously that's the that's the natural way stages yep. go. They build up to be so big. Somebody does something and it splits off. Um, one because that means they trusted me enough to lead a group of, of other people yep. or be on my own. So anytime anybody kind of has that trust in you, that's I mean to me that's just always been an amazing feeling. Um, but then to be able, I've always wanted to work people that I've never worked before. Absolutely. And you know, tagging with somebody and doing promos with somebody is different than facing them. Yeah, you know, that chemistry 100%. is completely different chemistry. So I've always been the fan of I'll, I'll work anybody you want me to work because I want to work as many people as I can. Yes. And of course, the family dynamic that we had would have made it easy. We made it fun, too. Just to 100 percent, because mm -hmm. I had so many ideas because, like you said, you're a physically imposing guy and I'm about five, seven on a good day. But I had so many <laughs> ideas where, like, I could use your size where I could hit a move that would drop a normal person but I could hit it on you like three times and you would barely wobble. You know, like just all these ideas that were going through my mind, but we just, we never, we never got to, to make that happen. And again, the family dynamic too, we have the same mindset because, you know, like you've heard so many wrestlers say, oh, a belt's not important. It's just a prop. But to the fans, it means something because if you're the bad guy, those fans are going to pay to want to see which good guy is finally going to beat you and take the title. And selfishly for me, too, I was always under the impression if I was one of your champions or the champion, I was main event every night. I had to follow whatever else came on the show before me, and that gave me an opportunity to work with more people than I might not have had the chance to do in any other circumstance. So it was literally giving me all these opportunities where other people were just looking at it as a prop. So, you know, some people might say I'm a mark for that, but that was my mentality, and it still is today. Yeah, and I think people, lots of what happens a lot of time on indie wrestling is you put so much work into a match yep. that you forget the other stuff that builds your character, like promos during the week, Preach. like um, 
especially if you're a champion, obviously somebody saw something in you, whether you're a transition champion or you're going to be champion for a while, whatever it is, somebody saw enough in you and what you've done to give you a belt. So do something with it. 100%. Even if that promoter doesn't necessarily see it in you, somebody else is going to see what you post on the internet. Yep. And they might say, Hey, we want that guy or that girl or whatever. Like uh, my first run with the tap heavyweight title, I won it like two weeks before we went on vacation. So I went to Rich. I said, Hey, we're going to Mexico. I'm a heel. You know, Why would you not? This, is Mc, this is McMinnville. You know, I'm, can I take this tag, this belt with me to Mexico? I'm going to flaunt it like crazy. He's like, do it hundred percent do it. So I posted promos of myself in Mexico, carrying the belt around about how I'm, you know, so much better than everybody. And this yeah. is what money gets you. This is, you know, being a champion. So I think people, you know, they win the title and then they just wait to lose it. Yep. They don't do anything with it. That's and I agree with that 100%. And again, just another funny thing about how this all ties back together is like when Tap became Tap and it split off from another promotion, I think I was the second person to hold that same belt that you ended up going on to hold too. So again, it all stays in family. So I I just love that <laughs> dynamic, but again, too, we think so much alike that that's where it's like, you know, our conversations off air as we're recording this of trying to get you back on involved in some way, shape or form on occasion with some shows that I'm on, whether it's as a tag team or as an opponent, I I still want to have that match that we never got to, whether it's taking forever to build to that, where it makes sense or it's just, you know, like however we make it happen, I want to do it so I can say that we, you know, I, I had a match with somebody in my family. We'd been building to it for over eight years at this point, And we finally got to check it off the box. You know, it's like, I want to do that. And then selfishly, too, this brings me to my next point of it. I want to have your son there and his Chuck Mangione get up to play you to the ring because I I don't know if we'll have your links to socials in the show notes. But your son, Austin, is a very accomplished brass player. And everybody's seen the Chuck Mangione Feel So Good album cover, especially if you watch King of the Hill, you know what that is. (laughs) Austin made that and he made a parody of it, too. So, like... What went into that, and what was it like for you as a parent, like seeing that entertainment gene or that entertainment bug in him coming out, not only through music but through like you know comedy and everything else he's doing with that too? What was that like for you? Well, and the Chuck Mangione thing actually, it was a parody, but it was also a tribute. I mean, he is a huge fan. Yes. So you know, with Austin, you know, we have two amazing kids, two completely different lifestyles. Mm-hmm. Austin is definitely the entertainer. Austin is the one that you could call him on any given day. And he's like, I don't know. I'm in Oklahoma doing a gig. I'm like, what? That, how are you in Oklahoma? He's like, yeah, they called and they had a gig. So we're driving down to Oklahoma to do this thing. Nice. I'm like, okay. You know, he's just fly by the seat of his pants. Yeah. Hey, this band needs a trumpet player. Do you want to play? Sure. So he drives over here and he's playing, um, you know, but he's, he's also that guy that he could meet a stranger today, end up rooming with him for the next month. And then leave, and that guy could be the best man in his wedding. And they'll never see him again after that. That's just Austin's personality is just he gravitates towards people. He's a general showman. Yeah, then we have Kelsey, who Kelsey is 100% the embodiment of what a good person is. Yes. You need help, she's going to help you. You want somebody to help your kids, she's going to teach your kids and babysit them. You want somebody to house it for you, she's going to do an amazing job. If you want somebody... Um, that's gonna you know give you an honest feedback that's her but she's not gonna hurt your feelings doing it you know and she's also definitely the one where he's the social butterfly she's more like me she's more the wallflower yeah 
Austin's more like Kelly. Austin and Kelly have never met a stranger in their lives. Me and Kelsey, you know, our close circle of friends is small for a reason. (laughs) It's so, it's so funny how that dynamic with the parents works because I've noticed that, especially I think with, even though I have two boys now, you know, it seems like the youngest tends to gravitate more towards dad and the oldest tends to pick up more of the personalities of mom, even though he looks more like dad, but I've started to pick that dynamic up a lot, and I noticed it a lot growing up with my parents and my sister, too. But, I mean, just the fact, too, like how you just described your children, speaking from seeing them and seeing how they interact with people, too. Like, you guys, I mean, I don't know if, like, you just had the magic wand of parenting, like, waved over you guys, but y'all did an amazing job. And that's underselling what you guys did as parents, too. So, man, like, you guys, you did some good for the world. I'll I'll say that much. (laughs) I can tell you anybody who says they know what they're doing as a parent is either lying or completely off target. You know, if you're honest with yourself and say, look, you know, we're just figuring this thing out. Obviously you have role models, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, friends like that, that kind of, you know, hopefully if you were you know, had a good childhood, you kind of try to emulate that in a way. Yep. But you know, every generation is raised differently just because the stuff that they face in, in society is different. Bingo. Um, you know, and our, our philosophy has always been, you know, we love our kids. Hey, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to do stupid things, you know, but just know that we're here. So trust us. If you come to me because you screwed up, we can fix it. If I find out later and it's gotten worse and worse and you lied, then it makes it harder. And that means you don't trust me and I don't trust you now, you know, this kind of thing. So we've always been open with them and they've always, thankfully, you know, as far as we know, as far as the big stuff goes anyway, they've been open with us. Absolutely. Man, that's that's parenting to a T right there. And let me put it this way. I'm six years in at this point, almost seven. I still don't know what I'm doing. I still don't know how to je- prioritize my time between work, kids, wife, voice acting, working out, whatever. Like, I, I still can't ju- you know, juggle all that. I'm still doing it horribly. And I'm going to lose sleep tonight because I still got stuff to do after this. But, you know, it's like it, it's 100% to a T. You figure it out as you go. You have those right. role models, but again, that's not all going to apply to your situation. But, uh, man, I got two quick round questions for you before I throw the reins your way and you start throwing some questions to me. So right. we're going to build it up here. They're both going to be possibly difficult questions, but let's see what your answers are on them. Okay, going back to Star Wars for a second. We got to give it just a little <laughs> bit more love here. First question, what is the best Star Wars movie of all time? As a kid, it was Return of the Jedi. Yes. As an adult, it's probably Rogue One. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. As a kid, as a kid, I and I'll tell you, like as a kid, I didn't appreciate Empire Strikes Back. It was too draggy for me. Right, right, right. Too storyline driven. So, and Empire and Return of the Jedi was the exact opposite. It's all action. It's you know the Ewoks and uh, lightsaber battles and all the stuff. But then, as, a, as an adult, Rogue One is just an amazing story, and it doesn't have to use jedi and the force and, yes you know it does have vader in it for a little bit but that's he's more of a background character not yes. you know so that it, it had a, such a huge impact without all without using all of the crutches as, yes as far as absolutely <laughs> absolutely man that is a perfect answer i i cannot argue that at all <laughs> plus with return of the jedi you actually had the emperor as a person and not a woman in an orangutan mask so <laughs> there's that little win too but okay this is going to be the hard one now. What would you say 
has been your favorite professional wrestling match that you have been a participant of? <sighs> My favorite one, and it's going to be for a reason that you wouldn't think, mm -hmm. would be the last one. Um, the one where I retired. Uh, in wrestling terms, retired is a loose definition. Of, he may be back. He uh, may yeah. not. Um, but it was uh, it was bittersweet. It's one of those things where, you know, as a performer, to know you're going to lose is always a hard thing yes. to sell that. But to also know it's going to be your last time doing it in your head, um, you know, that's a hard thing to go out to the ring. It's a hard thing to wait for your music to play. Um, and honestly, the way we had told the story for the months leading up to that, the crowd really thought I was the I was the baby. They really thought I was right. getting the payoff, and it was a complete swerve. So to see that genuine reaction from them, I mean, to see kids crying, to see adults like you know holding their head and like what's going on, I mean, it's that's a bad feeling on one end because <laughs> these people are hurt, whatever. But it's a great feeling to know that they were that invested in what yes. you were doing. You had them um, right in the palm of your hand. And the other part that you may not know about that night, but the reason why, the, really the big reason why it's my favorite, mm -hmm. beginning of the show, they had asked Austin to come out and play the national anthem. Yes. Oh, so, yes. So myself, Austin, and Kelsey all came out to the ring. Um, he played the national anthem on his trumpet. You know, the cool part about that is this is a kid that's not phased by anything. He's played in the Rose Bowl. He's played at Lucas Oil. He's played at AT&T Stadium mm -hmm. in Dallas. And we're on the stairs getting ready to go up, and my music hits. He's like, oh my God, I'm gonna throw up. <laughs> wow. I said, buddy, because I'm because I'm so nervous, I don't want to screw up. I was like, no, you're gonna be great, man. Don't worry. And I turn around and Kelsey's like holding her chest. She's like, I'm gonna pass out. <laughs> I was That's like, come amazing. on, guys, we can do this. So we go out, he plays, he performs, does a fantastic job. Well, the end of the night, they do the gimmick where I take the the um curb stomp onto the on the thumbtacks, I'm down. Uh Malachi, my opponent, goes and gets a uh, gas can that's full of gasoline and pours it all over me mm -hmm. goes out of the mm -hmm. ring to get the lighter well the show takes place in a church building the pastor is kind of there overseeing everything he gets on the microphone and says no you're not going to do that not here to the so Malcolm ends up decking the the pastor oh no and tries to get back in the ring with the lighter well in the meantime my kids have jumped the guardrail and slid in the ring and austin's in the ring checking on me asking me if i'm okay well, he stands up, Malachi's in the ring, Austin charges at him, starts trying to, you know, beat him up, whatever, Malachi fends him off, ducks under a thing, Malachi picks him up, a huge, you know, Malachi's six seven, so Austin's a good seven-something in the air, takes a perfect back, uh, back uh, choke slam, but it takes a perfect back bump on the choke slam. My God. So, well, while that's happening, Kelsey slides in the ring with a chair. And she hits Malachi with the chair. It's going to be, if you ever see the video, it's the most awkward chair shot anyone's ever given anyone. As it should be, though. Got, her hands got turned sideways, so she was, yeah. Oh, well, anyway, no. so he picks her up for a choke slam. And as he picks her up, he turns, and I spear him through a table. He, you know, he drops her to the side, and she's fine. And then we go to the finish of the match. So to have them involved and just to be able to share that moment, the, my last time in the ring, you know, for, for anything big like that, to have them in it, that was just one of the coolest things I could ever imagine dude i got goosebumps here that. that is amazing like oh my god yeah. that, that is that is great storytelling and that's what the job is right there that is beautiful and on top of that i didn't realize that guy was six seven yeah he's he a oh my god yeah he's a he's a big dude he's oh, a monster absolutely
Well, man, like that was a that was a high note for me to wrap my questions up on. So, dude, let's uh let's flip the script a little bit. Everybody knows what the prompt is by now. You've got five questions you can throw my way. I don't know what they're gonna be ahead of time. So let's uh let's have some fun here. Yeah, I gotta change uh, seats real quick. My phone's about to die. So. Oh yeah, you're good. That was my bad. Dedication. Um, that's what it is. <laughs> so first question though. Um, you know, we'll keep with the Star Wars theme. Obviously, that's something that we share, like you said. Of course. You know, you've always been a, uh, a huge fan of Ian McDermott, Emperor Palpatine. Yes. Um, one of the characters that, you know, not a lot of people would list as their favorite just because there's so many other amazing options. Of course. So what what was it about the character or was it the actor? What What, what drew you to that particular person? It's a little bit of column A and it's a little bit of column B and I Again, I, I I think the most credit has to go to the collaboration between George Lucas and Ian McDermott because I don't know if any other actor could have brought like the subtle little character traits to the table that Ian McDermott did. And I mean, literally, George Lucas says in a behind the scenes like uh, you know video about Palpatine, he's the devil. He's the embodiment of the devil. But he's so clever and he's so cunning that he can make you think he's your best friend or he's like that that grandpa that you can go sit under the tree with as you see in the prequels when he's a senator and he becomes the chancellor. It's just like these little intricate character traits that play for the character's long game throughout the entire series. And, you know, if you read the books, even going back before the series starts, and, you know, it's like all these things that Ian McDermott brought to the table to bring that character to life were just so magnificent that I don't think anybody else could have done that character justice the way he did. Okay. Um, another one, this one more towards wrestling. Yes. Uh, so I, I don't know if you still use this or not, but you were always, as long as I knew you used Turn the Page by yes. Metallica. What, whatever, usually the song has a meaning or a reason behind it. What was, what, why that song? Man, honestly, at that point, um, you know, everybody says I took it from Jeremiah Plunkett, and at one point I did because, you know, he used it and then he stopped using it. But at the time that I did start using it, um, man, I was going anywhere from three to five nights a week. Uh, there was one point where in one week on a Saturday I started in, you know, San Antonio, Texas. The next Saturday I was up, uh, I forget the town in West Virginia, but... I was wrestling anywhere from three to five nights a week. I was always on the road if I wasn't, you know, like in class or, you know, at work because I was, I was in my final semester of college full time. I was a full time manager. I was still wrestling, but I was doing this anywhere from like, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday to Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And it just fit. Like it just embodied the attitude. It just embodied what I was doing. It embodied the feelings. You know, it's like, you walk into a restaurant, you know, you shake off all the cold and everybody's staring at you. It's like, do you say something or do you just let it be and just go about your business so you can get on to the next town? And it's like, and again, here I am on the road again. That was, that was it to a T is like, that was my life. That's what I lived for at that time before the, you know, the, the burnout and the injuries kind of started building up, but that that's kind of what it was. Okay. Um, well, one of the things I've always loved and admired about you personally is that you are always black and white there is no gray you're, you're gonna wear your emotion you're gonna wear your emotions and your opinions on your sleeve i mean if somebody wants an honest opinion 
yeah, they're going to get it, whether they Thank you. necessarily. But <laughs> so, but with that, you know, on your social media, you've been super open about um, animal rescue, dog rescue, especially, and how important they are to your family. Yes. You know, where, where did your love of rescues come from? Oh, man. See, the thing is, is like, I just remember growing up, I always wanted a dog and I was always told like my dad, my mom would always just say, no, we can't have one. And then, you know, like one day my dad just randomly comes home. He's got this baby dachshund in his jacket where you can't see it when he walks in. And it's just like, that was first grade. We had her until like my senior year of high school when, you know, I don't know what happened. She just wandered off or she disappeared, but you know, whatever happened, but you know, like had her we had pugs we had a chinese crest we rescued a boston terrier that was about to be put down i just always grew up with dogs and when my parents you know finally separated for the second time and we couldn't bring my oldest dog maggie the dachshund with us you know it, it got to the point too and especially after she you know like disappeared from my dad's it was just like i i want a dog and i was looking for every excuse in the book to find one and bring one home so i just went to the local humane society and lo and behold, I'm like, well, you got to be 18 to adopt. I was 17. So I called my godmother and I was like, hey, I really want to get this dog for mom as a Valentine's gift. <laughs> I, knowing full well, I wanted it for me. I don't know how she took the bait or how she decided she was going to show up. But as soon as she did, like, this dog just jumped up, put his paws on her lap, and won her over. And, you know, like, for anybody that knows me or that's been over, that was Snoopy. Uh, and that was back in 2007. And I always tell people I use my last like 80 bucks in my bank account at that time to rescue him. You can see how smart I was. But, uh, you know, we ended up having that dog from 2007 up till 2017. When I moved off to college, he ended up living with my godparents. And, you know, like that became their dog. Like he was just spoiled rotten 100%. Uh, my ex-girlfriend before my wife now actually found a site called Tennessee Death Row Dogs and that's where we ended up adopting two of our pups. When we split, you know, like I kept them. One of them ended up passing away. She had real bad anxiety issues and everything. But uh, that's also where we got Elliot. And just, you know, like seeing these pictures and seeing these dogs that are like so lovable and they just need this attention and this affection and even cats too. Like I, I wasn't a cat person before my wife. We've got <laughs> two that we've rescued now. But it's like seeing these animals that not only need the love, but deserve it too. And they're like this close to being put like to sleep because nobody wants them. Nobody like, whether it's an animal, well, I say I'm maybe a snake. Sorry, Jeff. But, uh, you know, it's like no animal should have to feel like that. So everyone deserves a good home. And especially if it's a dog that has a negative stereotype to it, like a pit bull. Dude, I mean, like, granted, Mo has passed now and he wasn't the most outgoing and friendly, but... He was skittish. He was abused before we got him, and he never really came out of that. But again, too, like, he was always the sweetest one to me. You know, and if he went to your house, he would be the sweetest one to you. But, you know, like, these dogs have these stigmas about them, and if nobody else would want them, I would take them all in if I had the room and the money to do it. You know, it's just like I want them to have the same love and feelings that they give me, like, when I see them get excited that I'm coming home or you know, whatever it is. Like, I want them to know that somebody cares about them and that they don't have to worry about being given up by somebody who's not going to take care of them. And, you know, that's the end goal when I retire is to have this big sanctuary for dogs and cats where they never have to worry about being put to sleep or 
you know, just being abandoned. If they get abandoned, they're going to have someplace they can play, they can have friends, and they're never going to have to worry about it. You know, it's like, I just, I want to take care of these animals that don't have somebody to take care of them. Right. Okay. Man, I'm really long-winded on that. <laughs> I could go a lot longer, too. <laughs> it's something you're passionate about, man. Of course, of course. So speaking of something you're passionate about, obviously, you know, your husband, father, um, what has been the biggest eye opener about being a husband or father? And what's been the best part? Oh, man. Um, honestly, it's just, for me, it's still a learning experience, but like when we have these moments or, you know, even whether it's like taking Levi to meet a voice actor that I grew up on and got to do workshops and classes with, or just getting to have these family experiences now where we can all spend time together. That's the biggest thing. And it seems like too, I'm constantly on pins and needles because I didn't have like the best dad to look up to. So I try, like, I'm always tired. I'm exhausted. I'm mentally burnt out because, you know, it's like, I don't sleep well. So I'm not always bringing my best to the table. And it's always a struggle sometimes to do that. But when I can actually do it and, you know, things work or, one of the kids doesn't have their growing up attitude where they know everything and we can just like watch a movie together, or go do something, go to the park. Like that's the best stuff. And it's the simple stuff more than anything else. Well, I can tell you that um, attitude doesn't go away for a no. few more years. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. Yeah. Oh, it's intensely for around 13. So well, let me ask you this. When does the two year old stop saying no, or I don't want to, and taking his pull-up off and streaking through the house. When does that stop? Because it never happened um, with our first one. Yeah, it's uh, it's about the time. Like, we only had one child that was like that. Very strong-willed, very, very bullheaded. And uh, it was probably about three or four. Oh, boy. We're, we're almost to three, so maybe we're getting to the finish line. <laughs> Gotta love them, though. Gotta love them. All right, well, lastly, um, you kind of hinted to it about the voice acting. Yes. That's, again, something that most people don't think about. You know, it's not something, a career that comes to mind when you're thinking about career possibilities, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. You know, how did you get into that? And how did you, when was the moment you're like, yeah, this is, this is me. Man, truth be told, you know, it's like I grew up watching cartoons like everybody else did. And, you know, like I always thought they were funny. I could mimic some of the lines, uh, especially South Park. You know, that was my thing, even though I shouldn't have been watching it that young. But, you know, it's like I never thought like, that these were actual people acting. I thought it was just somebody, you know, reading into a microphone more than anything yeah. else. And, um, you know, like I was getting back into my love of star Wars, the whole animated series, like the clone wars had passed before they revamped it. Star Wars rebels was a thing and it had actually, you know, ran its final season. And then I started seeing these, um, these ads on Facebook for a, you know, chance to do master classes and workshops with Steve Bloom, who ended up being like one of the main voices of Zeb, one of the main Rebels characters, and who's also now like the voice of all the stormtroopers you hear that are across the movies, across the animated series. Like, that's all him. And um, he does these classes where he tells you about like how he got into the business, and he didn't get in until he was in his 40s. And then he brings in people that I grew up on, like Bob Bergen, who does Porky Pig. Charlie Adler that did Cow and Chicken, um, D. Bradley Baker that does the voice of all the clones in Star Wars, the animated series for like Rebels or uh, Clone Wars, whatever it may be. And he's also the voice of Eagly on Peacemaker since that just wrapped up. You know, it's like 
all these different unique people that you grow up with and don't get the chance to actually like talk to at a convention because their lines are so long. They sit there and give you this advice on it. And, you know, before I even pulled the trigger and signed up for that, I just sat through his little one hour, like, uh, you know, explanation of what it is, how the business works and what you would get if you signed up for the class. And I'm like, well, fuck yeah, sign me up. You know, it's like, yeah, you hear about people doing voiceovers like for commercials, which I didn't even think about as something I could do, but my neighbor right. up the street does it. So I'd talk to him about it. But you know, it's like you hear this and animation has been like my biggest passion for it. It's like, oh my God, there, there's a possibility. But Again, too, it related so much to wrestling because a lot of what wrestling has taught me over the years is that there are people, like, there's so many people now. Like, sometimes people will say the market is saturated. You'll get people that will put the effort in, get the coaching, get the gear, get the booth, whatever it may be, and they'll get the proper training, get the proper demos made when they're ready. And then you'll have people that just do it, you know, like, on a laptop that don't have the best audio quality, and, you know, whatever it may be. And no knocks on those people because they're very talented. They just don't invest in the proper equipment or maybe they can't. But, you know, again, when you have to audition and you can't be one of the first ones in line for that, you uh, you have to go up against all that. And sometimes you get lost in the shuffle. So, I mean, it's uh, it's been a very rewarding thing. And it also led me to doing this podcast. But at the same time, too, it's been a bit of a mental struggle because, you know, again, too, wrestling has taught me to have thick skin. But sometimes when you go, like, it's been, truth be told, as we're recording this, it's been three months since I've booked an audition. I've gotten shortlists. I've gotten callbacks. I've gotten two agents in that time frame. But the last job I booked was for a company out in Oklahoma that's a steel manufacturing company for their new company initiative, and that was in December. But as this is coming out, that's going to be six months, so hopefully we'll have some more stuff in the pipeline by then. But, you know, it's right. like going through those lulls or realizing that just because somebody didn't pick your audition doesn't mean you're bad. Like that's been right. the hardest struggle. It's like, well, what am I doing wrong if I'm not getting booked? Well, you may be doing everything right, but you just weren't what they were looking for. That was the hard thing to learn too. And you know, like for a lot of other people, the hard thing to learn is who's the best coach to look for or, you know, who to, who that may be. But thankfully wrestling has helped with that too, because you find out who can credibly train you or who's just in it to take your money. And, you know, it's it's all kind of come full circle. But, again, the hardest part is just keeping yourself dedicated to it and being willing to put that extra work in. Like, when we wrap up here, I've got about 10 or 15 auditions in my inbox that I've got to knock out before I can go to sleep tonight just because I want to have the opportunity to compete and see if I can't put more on my resume. You know, like, right. that's the end goal is to make that a full-time job, but... Right now, I can't get to it as as quick as some people, so sometimes I may get lost in the shuffle. But again, too, I've got to remind myself that doesn't mean you're bad. But, you know, I mean, it's like it all started from just looking for another way to fill the entertainment bug and, you know, scratch that itch when I wasn't wrestling anymore. And it all popped up from a Facebook ad from a guy that I'd heard voice so many things I'd listened to growing up. Like, it's all just open from there. All right. Again, just like how we the interview it's, it's crazy how the world works I yeah mean, it, it really you, is you like <laughs> there's there's a grand scheme in place that we don't always see but it's like when we do finally see little glimpses of it it's like oh something really is at play here you know it's like it, it's like it's this eye-opening experience when it really shouldn't be like it you know what's going on 
But again, we get in our own way sometimes, so we're just mind blown. Right. Oof, well, man, those were some good questions. And I love, too, that throughout this season, everybody has brought different questions and different, like, levels of depth to these questions. And it's made it so much more fun for me to actually be on the spot and answer them, too. So, <laughs> dude, thank you for bringing these to the table. And not only that, dude. Thank you for giving me over an hour and a half of your time here tonight to do this interview because, again, it's like family catching up and getting to learn more about you that I didn't know, you know, in the uh, 13 or so <laughs> years that we've known each other because I can't even keep up anymore, you know. But it's like, again, I learned something more about people that I've, you know, that I've known for so long, but we don't just we don't get the chance to talk about. So this has been awesome. Right. Well, the one thing we can both agree on is that Jermaine's always a punk and always going to be. Of course, of course. I mean, it's we had to rearrange so, the schedule to get him on here, you know, for Saturday. But God, try working with that guy every day too. That's even worse. My God, get the yeah, oh, funny, funny yeah. little story for you too. Here, uh, we had to do our first responder recertifications today, and lo and behold, guess what? I named my dummy. I named it Seven, and he didn't make it either. <laughs> He's still a punk, but he's got a good story to tell. I'll, I'll go ahead and drop the hint on that. Yeah, no, he's definitely a good dude. That's... Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, man, dude, thank you again for uh, for coming on here and being so generous with your time, telling your story and sharing your experiences. And I'm going to make sure we have links to all of your socials. And if anybody wants to see some of that footage you were talking about on there, too, we'll have some links to that in the show notes. Okay, awesome, man. Thank you. I really do appreciate oh, it. It's dude, of up. course, of course. And like I said, I'm hoping I'll see you again here soon, and maybe I can pull you back in for a few things here or there or have you wash my back when somebody calls the cops. You know you know how that goes. <laughs> Wrestling, you know, that's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody, this has been an awesome interview here. So for myself, for Nick, for just Jeff over here working his magic on the uh, on the technical side of things. We all thank you for tuning in here tonight, and it takes a village to keep this thing going, so I'm just grateful for the team that we have in place here. I'm grateful for my guests that want to come on here. And actually, no, let's not call them guests. Let's call them my friends because that's what they are. They're my friends and my family. They come on here. They chat with me, and you guys want to keep listening to the stories, and that's what keeps this thing going. So, guys, for the time being, I can't wait to come back and talk to you all again next week with another awesome guest. I thank you all again for tuning in. I hope you've gone and subscribed on your preferred platform. I hope you're following on social media. I hope you'll give Nick a follow here in the in the show notes. We'll have all his links. Hope you'll keep up with just Jeff and our other podcast, Tales from the Haunt. And before I come back to you next week, I hope you go out and do some good in the world. So for everybody here, I thank you for tuning in this week. I can't wait to talk again next time. And I know you hear me. I Know You Hear Me podcast is a presentation of Flynn Hendricks Enterprises. We thank you for tuning in this week, and we hope you'll check out our sponsors and advertisers. Make sure you check us out next week as we come back at the same time with another awesome episode.